Track Transfer Talks, the podcast series of ASTP. Your host is András, and my guest is Jeff Skinner from the London Business School. Jeff, I believe there's hardly anyone in the tech transfer scene who doesn't know your name, but they might know very little about how you got into this and how it was in the early days. Can you take us through the time? When I started, there were very few people doing tech transfer. In fact, I'm not even sure it was called tech transfer in those days. We didn't have a name for it. And in the UK, there were four of us. And in Europe, very scattered. I mean, ETH might have been doing a bit, Leuven might have been doing a bit, but it was very much a minority sport. And nobody really knew what they were doing. I've been out in industry, and I've been a researcher as well. And what intrigued me about the whole activity was that there was all this technology there that could be of great use to business, to industry, and nobody seemed to be doing anything with it. And, you know, I'd been a scientist, and I hadn't had any interest in doing anything with it either. And then I'd learned how exciting commercialization should be, because I joined a company where they wanted to exploit the technology that I'd done. So having done that and realized that actually commercialization of science was rather good fun, where could I do more of it? And I, I landed on a university because they had lots of technology and there was a vice, uh, a provost at the time, a dean, a rector, who was keen to make this happen but didn't know how to. And so I set to work. And in those days, setting to work meant finding a few academics who were really keen on doing something with their research. And I immediately identified four, just four, out of the whole of UCL, and working with them to do something with that technology to, to find investors to find users customers to to encourage them because these were fairly lonely people inside their departments everybody else was focused on academic research and here were these kind of oddballs who were much more focused on generating impact and getting their products to market we had an astronomer who had, had an amazing new type of detector that could revolutionize digital imaging in healthcare I had this guy who had invented this amazing new hip system that would be terrific for people with cancer. And so we just set to work with them and I became the commercial director and they were the technical director. We worked very much as a team and just made something happen. And those days I was messing around. Really, I didn't know what I was doing, frankly. Knew more than the academics, but not a lot more. And... We started having successes, but for me, it was sort of six or seven years before we really started having those great successes. And I began to realize, learn how to do it in, in a way that, that I could then say, well, that works and I can apply to this project and that project. And then, and then they kind of started to become much easier because I'd figured out how to do it. You know, but there was nothing like ASTP around with any type of training courses to, to help you. You just had to learn as you, as, as you went. But the beautiful thing about those days is that you could work with the people who wanted to work with you. There was, there was no sense that it was a, a universal service that you were providing. It was who are the really extraordinary academics who want to do this stuff and we can work with them and ignore everybody else, which meant we could spend a lot of time on those projects. We were flying below the radar and we were having a lovely time because these academics wanted to work with us. So I'd say that was the first phase. And by the time we got to those five or six years later, there were probably about 
40 of us in the UK who were doing this sort of stuff and we'd formed our own little association uh, where we all started talking and sharing experiences and that was kind of phase one where we were all growing up together and we were all sort of in our early, late 20s early 30s trying to do this stuff and, and making it up and failing but but gradually getting an idea of, of what to do and then the government decided that we're doing something useful and they wanted more of it and they saw that they were putting all this money into research and only getting academic publications out of it and that they didn't like this they want they they wanted to unlock more of the potential of this science into into industry and began to make it pretty clear that in, at some point in the future the extra funding for the universities would be justified by you know would only result if we were showing some sort of socio-economic benefit but they also realised that the universities didn't have the money to invest in this themselves, so they needed to create some extra pots of money to do this. And they, they went about creating these various schemes. There were about three or four of them in a row uh, to create a seed fund, to create a, you know, something called the Science Enterprise Challenge, where we upskilled the researchers, and then some money with a, another fund that eventually became something called the Higher Education Innovation Fund. And, and this was substantial sums of money. And we had to write bids to say how we'd spend the money, and we did, and because we were the only people who knew how to write these things, and there was lots of money, we got the money. So suddenly we were bringing in millions and millions of pounds into our institutions. And they obviously said, you know, would you run it? So we suddenly found ourselves running these much bigger units. You know, in the end, mine grew to about 50 or 60 people. And that was mirrored in quite a few other institutions. And these teams began to grow. And we were still able to an extent to work with the people who wanted to work with us. We were able to recruit people who were passionate about doing this. It was still not really a career path for a, a proper scientist. You know, we were picking up the oddballs. We were picking up people like ourselves who really enjoyed this, who really enjoyed working with usually people who had been in science themselves, and they wanted to get into generating impact from. So we, we were able to pick up these people and give them their head, and they just went ahead and did it. And, uh, you know, we were enabling them to do what we had done, but hopefully better because we could actually manage them and, and point them in the right direction from everything that we'd learned. So you had the funds, you had the momentum, you and had the experience how to do it. What was going to be the next step? As those directors, we thought to ourselves, well, we've learned quite a lot now. Why don't we create some training packages that allow the youngsters coming into the profession to accumulate these skills in, in a more accelerated, structured way. And that was the point at which we began to put together training courses. So I remember the very first one we ever did in Manchester on fundamentals of technology transfer. Syllabus largely borrowed from a similar course in the US, but we quickly adapted it to our own. And then I created the spin-out one. I created one in, uh, in technology licensing and then in business development. And we began to accumulate a people who were quite good at training as well as quite good at doing, but it was always practitioner-led, always expert-led. And um, the, the courses were clearly popular and, and needed, so it was seen as being the way of accelerated training. And in the UK, this was under the banner of something called Praxis. And then I was, at that point, deeply involved in ASTP as well, where it was growing up maybe a few years behind, not in the top institutions, but generally. 
And I suggested to ASTP, why don't we do the same thing? And so one day we had a course which we put together largely based on what we'd done in practice. And we had our first training course in Lisbon in, I don't know when it was, 2007, eight or something like that. And it all grew from there because this was, again, this massive desire for people to learn about how to do it properly from people who had done it themselves, the practitioners. So it, it was immediately successful from, from day one. And the same kind of enthusiastic people who really had a passion for generating impact out of research. So they, so they were fun to teach because they had this thirst for, for teaching. So that's kind of how it started. Can we safely say that you were one of the pioneers in Europe? You know, within Europe, especially in places, I said, like ETH, like the Fraunhofer's, like KU, KU Leuven, uh, they, were, they were doing some spectacular stuff there as well. But they were the people that really came together to form ASTP in the first place. And they are the ones who also came together pretty quickly around the idea of, of doing training courses. So the people who were these pioneers, like myself, who many of whom are still involved, are also the ones who recognize that we need to pull this expertise and, and package it and turn it into a, a solid training program for, for people who are, who are coming after us. So it was, you know, it's a, tre a tremendous team approach. But yes, I guess we were the pioneers the inspired amateurs who led the pack. And how did it grow from a few inspired amateurs to mainstream? I mean, the whole thing was triggered in the UK by the money, because it became a very clear signal that this was going to be important in the future. And if you look at the evolution within the UK, it, it went from spin-outs being everything, and then engagement with business becoming really important as well. And so money was given for kind of business development type activities. And, and then academics began to get the message that this was going to matter in terms of the way in which they as individuals and departments were reviewed and assessed and praised and, and rewarded in terms of the block grant they get. So I think it started off, and this is one of the biggest changes, it started off with just us doing it because we had a few vice chancellors who said this was a good thing to do and willing to give us a bit of money to do it ourselves, very small teams, one, two per university. And then the government money came along And that allowed us to expand it, but still really work with the people who wanted to work with us, you know, the ones who are passionate about, the academics who are passionate about uh, doing this stuff. But, you know, no real expectations that this was going to be universal. It was just going to be for the people who wanted to. And we even thought at the beginning that the, the changes in incentive were going to mean that those individuals were rewarded for doing it. But, but basically, we were only going to be working with the individuals who really wanted to do it. It's just now that we could resource it properly and they would be rewarded for it. In other words, they wouldn't be put off doing it. What's actually happened then, I'm still talking about the UK, is that now impact forms part of everybody's job alongside academic and teaching. And so I think we're probably getting people now... The, the expectation, and this is really the way, the way that the profession has changed, I think, it is becoming a service that we have to offer academics rather than certain academics who are fun to work with, who we, we want to help and who want our help. It's now become, you have to help me because I need impact, so help me to have impact. And, and, and that kind of changes the way, changes the role of the tech transfer person and, and the expectations that are on them. And how do you see the European scene in contrast of the UK? I don't think Europe is quite there yet, certainly not in terms of the, the way 
individual academics are, are incentivized. I still think that these are a lot more based on publication still. There isn't a monetary reward or impact. Although I do think the horrible word, I think that the culture is changing, the expectations are changing. Certainly the what local regional governments want out of their universities to generate some sort of socio-economic impact. So there's definitely that, that change that it's become part of the role of the university to generate this. And alongside that, I, I think there's a then I do a lot of training of academics in knowledge transfer and commercialization. There's a lot of young academics who are now much more switched on to this and, and wanting to engage in this activity and feel it's part of their role than there were 10, 15 years ago. So I think we're, we're also feeding the supply of people who want to do it, as, as well as feeding the demand of the institutions who want more of it. So now we're here, 20 some years later, there are hundreds of tech transfer offices around Europe. Do you think we managed to send the right message to the academics so far? Do they appreciate the opportunity that tech transfer offers? I mean, I think there are two reasons why people, maybe three reasons why people don't do something. One is it's it, it's a stupid thing to do. We'll set aside that. And, and the second reason is, of course, they don't want to. And the third reason is they don't know how to. And I think that we as technology transfer people can't really do anything about the people who don't want to and actually I really wouldn't like the idea of working with academics who felt they had to but didn't really want to because they wouldn't be fun to work with so I think it has changed that because the expectations are changing we're, we're bringing in more people who don't really want to but somehow they're being ex- exhorted to, to have to do so and and I am glad that I'm not one of those who is being coming into the profession now who is expected to make something out of out of that situation. You know, the, the glorious thing about my days is that we worked with the people who wanted to work with us and I keep on repeating that and that makes such a difference to the satisfaction and kick and buzz that we, we got out of the job. You talk about the old days with nostalgia. Have things changed a lot since? What has changed the most? I think in those days, we were the oh, those days, you know, we were measured on a long time scale. We were measured by the successes we had, but they could grow over years. I despair when I hear that tech transfer offices that are still being measured by the number of spin outs and the number of licenses, because Goodhart's law that says when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So it leads to too many game playing and short term stuff, you know, number of people attending conferences. And you can easily get into the situation where you count what doesn't count and the things that count can't be counted. And it leads people to, to, to do the wrong things. It, it leads to a highly bureaucratic, if you want to put it that way. You know, we have to do this thing to meet the targets. And so that it gives the bureaucrats and the people who are measuring us the control. Whereas in our days, you know, we had our eyes clearly focused on the fact that our customers were the, were the academics and we were trying to help them to fulfill the potential for their research that they want to do. It's an entirely different type of thing. So I think that in, I'm talking very generally here indeed, but I think that we had an awful lot of fun. That sounds very appealing. Who wouldn't want to have a lot of fun in the job? I think that we're in danger of that fun element disappearing because we are not being given the same autonomy to do good stuff as, as we used to. And as Thomas Pink says, if you want to motivate people, then you give them purpose, mastery and autonomy. 
and purpose is now to meet targets rather than to do good stuff. I know how to do it, I'm master, but some of the things I'm being asked to do, uh, I'm having to do these outputs and I don't really feel that I've got any you know, mastery over that. I know how to do the big picture, but this little stuff, I don't, and, and the autonomy is being taken away because I've got to meet short-term targets. So I'm, I'm, I, th I think that a really brave statement here, I don't know whether I would be any good or want to get into this profession at a junior level anymore, given the, the, the way in which the whole environment has, has changed. But I'm forever the, the pioneer, I suppose. You don't seem to be entirely optimistic about the profession. How do you see the future? Well, I think that a lot of institutions want it. And we may be entering, and this is not universal, absolutely not universal, and some are brilliant at, at doing it and their leadership are brilliant at doing it. But there's always the danger that you have a, an executive, a senior management team of, of an institution, all of whom have been promoted for probably research, probably leading research groups. So that's sort of academic, lead, academic leadership and maybe for teaching. I hope teaching since that's the main business of an institution. So they're the people who run our institutions. Somebody once said unkindly, the lunatics run the asylum. I'm getting to retirement, so I can say these things now. But the danger is that you've got um, a group of people, and you talked about Eastern Europe, you know, who are getting into this for the first time. Their progression is being accelerated. They have to do this, and yet leadership hasn't grown up doing it and learning how to do it. So I think there the problem may be that you have a leadership team that really doesn't know how to lead innovation. And I want to work for somebody who can judge my success, who knows what success looks like in the short term and in the long term, who knows what reasonable expectations are, who I can go to when I have particular issues. And, and I think that you can have a, a university leadership team that has not got that experience. And therefore, you get the whole thing, which is kind of discombobulated. You get a group of people who are on the side of the organization with all sorts of expectations on them, led by individuals who have no idea what these people are doing or what is reasonable for them to achieve. There, I've said it. And, and I think that's the greatest shame. Whereas in the more mature organizations, you have either secure people at the top who are willing to accept that they don't know this and create some sort of structure where they can bring advisors on who do and delegate to them or you've got academics who've got some knowledge transfer track record of their own and uh, who are now in these more senior positions and know how to lead others who are, who are doing it but there's this kind of there could easily be a transitional period where you've got universities that are trying to do it and a leadership who has not a clue how to make it happen i have to ask you the million dollar question what makes a good tech transfer professional what makes a good tech transfer professional I think being a tech transfer person is becoming more challenging, greater expectations. Essentially, I still think technology transfer is about generating relationships. So let's break it down. It's about developing the relationships internally. There's a, a part which is working with academics to see what intellectual property there really is and what value it might have. So there's this sort of set of assessment. And then there is some knowledge that you have to have on how to protect it, which isn't always by patents. So there's some hard technical knowledge there of, I know what to do with this. Once, once we've identified there's something there and it's worth doing something with. And then there's the step where you have to say, who might this be useful to? 
and let, let's identify some companies, do some sort of secondary market research, something to find the companies and to make the companies aware of this new technology expertise, uh, which is a marketing bit. And then you have the, okay, so they're now interested in doing something with us. And so we have to somehow structure a deal with them. Let's negotiate. Let's find what it is they want and what we want and, and somehow get some you know, small beginnings going, some sort of stuff which is going to deliver value to both sides and, and both sides want something different out of this. So we have to structure a deal of some kind, structure the relationship, I should say, of some kind. And then if you're successfully, we all wanted to grow into something bigger and then it starts to become higher stakes. And so we have to learn how to negotiate the bigger deals and actually know where big deals can go wrong. So we have to become rather good at knowing how to structure right in the important points of any actual agreement. And then after that, we have to obviously make sure the relationship is going all right and there's a whole lot of post-agreement type stuff. So I've taken us through a whole load of stuff there. And to be a good tech transfer person, so many of us are still operating sort of the cradle to the grave. I've described about five or six different, very different roles that all have to be in the same person. And so a great tech transfer person is is actually one who can either do all that or show that they're really proficient in knowing when they have to reach out to experts who can do it and to bring those experts in and out. You know, another thing that I've done... I was uh, the chair of the peer review group for the professional qualification, RTTP, for many years. And and in that role, I had to read a lot of uh, achievement overviews. Anybody who applied for RTTP had to write this achievement overview. And I, over the course of 10 years, I read every single one of them. And they were the impressive ones, the people who had managed to create something out of nothing, taken something through all the way to spotting it in a laboratory somewhere, to finding the partners, to structuring the deal. And, and at the end of this process, they had to show that value had been created and sufficient value had been captured by the university and that the academics were happy and that the business was happy and it was a successful relationship. So to be a successful tech transfer person really successful in in producing the right outputs, I think that's what you have to learn to be able to do. It all looks promising then. We have more and more RTTPs. Is there anything else that worries you about the profession? Now, the problem, I think, for the profession might be, number one, institutions who want too much out, so they're greedy. And that gives it's all a bad name because they grab too much of the deal uh, and too much of the equity and all this sort of stuff. So that's... But the other danger, I think, is... People who, institutions, you've chunked this all down into shorter term KPIs. And so you're bringing in individuals who just worked those KPIs. You know, my job is to run an event. Nothing wrong with running an event, but it's part of a bigger thing. It's all, all these things. It's all these places where the activities have become end in themselves. Something to be counted as opposed to part of a much bigger picture. And if you're bringing in people who can do those little bits and that's my job and that's it, it divisionalizes, it silos, and you begin to do what is the death of any organization, which is bureaucratize innovation. I believe many of us would be very happy with a professional career like yours. What's the next challenge you're looking for? Well, I did tech transfer when I was in industry, you know, and, and that's where I first realized how much I loved it. And then 
I transitioned into university tech transfer very early on and grew with it. And for all the time that I was able to have the autonomy, it was great fun. And then, and then I, I, I stepped out of it, you know, after 18 years. To be perfectly honest, I'd grown an office to 50 people and I wasn't particularly good at managing it. So I'd been taken away from the stuff that I really liked to do. But I kept on doing it. And I'd done it for long enough. It was now becoming mainstream. Somebody once accused me of having way too much fun, visibly. And uh, it was true, I was having loads of fun. And I saw all sorts of other people in the university not having fun. And I thought that was their fault. I'm doing something which is fun. I'm making my own fun. But now other people wanted to get in on the same fun. These were large budgets. These were large activities, peoples. And so more people started saying, I want that. I want that. And encroaching in and, you know, senior management thinking, I know how to do that, even if they only partially did, but they wanted to interfere, you know. And so it became less fun there. And, and frankly, at the age of 50-something, I was thinking, so what the hell do I do now? And then came along the opportunity to get involved in an entirely different activity, which was just beginning to take off at that time. And, and that was Student Enterprise, which is a course I'm running for STP at the moment. Notice 10 years later when we've learned what we're doing and only then can we start to teach this stuff. So there's a, this period of learning before you can teach it. And so I got into this activity student enterprise and loved it because I was right back there doing what I'd done at the beginning, which was new venture creation, this time with really lively students who are almost as fun to work with and more, to, more so sometimes than, than the liveliest academics, very bright minds. And so I was enabling a whole new group of people. And again, I was back to the same thing. I didn't have to serve all the students. I could work with the ones who wanted to work with me. There we go. And they're the most fun to work with. Uh, we could learn together. We could figure out what skills they needed in order to be successful, what kind of mentoring, what kind of ecosystem was, was needed. And it was creating something. Uh, all over again and then guess what a few years later I I mean I happen to be in an institution that that values this London Business School in the same way that I was at a an institution UCL that valued it when I started it and were just allow me to, to get on with it which I did and at LBS the same thing and, and then whoa what do we know it suddenly becomes interesting in other universities first in the UK and now in Europe and, and people are thinking you know we need enterprising students we need incubators we need startup stories we need these great examples that uh, we can use for fundraising and for attracting the next generation of students in because this is a sexy thing to be able to offer students and you know and, and all this sort of stuff so we, we've suddenly found our, ourselves kind of mainstream again i always loved what the bono said about success he said to be successful in life you either have to be lucky a little crazy very good or find yourself in a high growth field. And I've no idea how good I am. I'm a bit crazy and um, a little bit lucky, but, but really I found myself in high growth field. Tech transfer, four people doing it when I started in 1990, 40 by 1994. By the time you got to the 2000, 2001, 2002, there were thousands of people doing it. That's a high growth field. And the same thing with student enterprise. We figure it out, a bit of a pioneer, do things that other people haven't done. And then suddenly people start saying, could you do a course on it, please? Because it's suddenly become mainstream. 
tell everybody what I've done, but it's at staying ahead. So now, if this ever becomes mainstream before the time that I, I want to step down and actually, you know, you never quite step down because you're having too much fun. But the thing that really interests me at the moment and I think is going to become a massive growth field is corporate innovation and corporate incubators and things. So that's that's an area that with my industry past and technology commercialization and everything, I think that might be quite a fun one to get into. But uh, for the time being, this whole student enterprise is good part time and the rest of the time continuing to engage with this wonderful organization and find academics all over the place who I can continue to help, but individually, without the encumbrance of a massive bureaucracy and all its expectations. Last November, you had the very first course of student enterprise. Can you share more about it? What does it offer? Nearly everything we do is applied common sense. It's nothing particularly rocket science-y about anything that we do. And yet, so easily, people can think that there is some secret source. And a lot of what we do here is to demystify, frankly. It's saying, what do you think is a sensible thing to do? The answers are all in the class. You kind of know it already. And let's all talk about it around a particular problem in instant case. And then at the end of it, you will go away with the confidence knowing that actually your instincts were right. Now, that's half of it. And then the rest of the half is tools and frameworks and theories and stuff which other people have found to be useful that we can books to read that we can give you to do as, as, as well. Sort of these um, often management frameworks. So I think what's useful is the opportunity to discuss common issues and to create a space for that, to share experiences, to share what we've tried and what did work and and what didn't work with our students. We all have run hackathons. So what were the successful models and let's cross share some of that. And I think that's what people really value as much as anything else. The ability, it's always very lonely. When you're doing these things, it's always very lonely in your own institution. You've got nobody to talk to. And so you come here and you come across people who feel equally lonely and lacking in instruction inside their own organisations. And so we bring them together for a good old discussion amongst each other. And then we inject into that a couple of people who have done it for a few more years than they have. So have made a few of the mistakes and can accelerate the learning of the new people who are coming in. And we might also inject into that a few real experts, bring in the odd lawyer, the odd patent agent, the ones who really know what, what, what they're doing in a very specific, narrow field of which they've had years of training. But they also can be the ones who come in and says, well, let me tell you all the things that go wrong. And that, that's, that's great learning as well. So it's this bringing together of the practitioners who've been doing it for a while, everybody else who wants to come in and talk and learn with each other. And there's an enormous amount of time given over to networking. You know, this, you know, sort of talking about the things in the evenings and breaks and stuff. Um, and, and then I say the, the experts who we can bring in as well. So it's creating this space for, for learning that I think everybody values. I'm sure about that. The same way as we value your company. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. This was a Tech Transfer Talks with me, Andras. See you next time.